Hello everyone, it's John here, just letting you know we're aware that Alison has some music bleeding through in the latter half of the podcast. Alison very kindly recorded while she was at a festival in a field, but unfortunately we hadn't quite grasped what that would mean for the audioscape. Hopefully it doesn't impede your enjoyment too much, but we'll be back to a regular service next episode. See you all after the music. Hello everyone and welcome to the very 87th episode of Octothorpe, a podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom. This episode is coming to you on the 6th of July 2023. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And we have some letters of comment. So sometimes we have tweets of comment. Twitter broke. So if you sent us a tweet of comment, please try sending it again on a different social network. Thank you. We love you all. We love hearing from you. Christopher J. Garcia wrote in, as he usually does, a day late. I swear I will speedily listen next week. We will be watching, Chris. Um, Chris uh, says lots of things, all of which are good. He saw a moose in person once. It was about eight feet tall and it was in chill mode. And that is about the opposite of Alison in both respects. Because Alison is not eight feet tall and is perhaps not as chill as a moose. I am pretty chill. I do not. I very rarely stampede at people and whack them with my giant antlers. <laughs> I would also say that uh, a moose is considerably more deadly than Alison. That is another way in which you are differentiated. Oh, you just cross me. (laughs) Listeners, if you could write in and tell us whether you'd rather have a fight with Alison or a fight with a moose, and we will read out the best responses next episode. (laughs) Would you rather have a fight with a hundred Alison-sized moose or one moose-sized Alison? Chris Chris did pick us up on some pronunciation. Uh, he says, never call it Los Angeles, it's Los Angeles. Uh, and also, if we need stunt versions of ourselves, Chris volunteers to portray John Coxon. He might be able to pull off a reasonable Liz, but he's been working on his Coxon delivery since 2009, and he's awesome at it. What I now want to see is whether Chris could do all three of us. Well, we know that he once. could, because we've done it on the cover. Well, that was all three of us doing Chris. No, I was just going to say about Chris's letter that I think... Chris Garcia, I think, is the man with the most energy who could do all three of us uh, convincingly during a live episode, and I would like to see that. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And I'd like to see that at a Californian convention, but obviously at an Easter con, I'd want it to be Tobes. Ooh. I think that would be funny. Yeah, I'm okay with that. We we also heard from uh, Abigail Nussbaum, who writes in and apologises for confusing Alison. And Liz, I think. Would you rather confuse Alison or confuse a moose? <laughs> no, no, I, I knew what was going on. I <laughs> I knew what was going on. I just let you finish before I pointed out that you got the wrong end of the stick. Um, oh my God, that's so much worse, Liz. <laughs> I don't like to interrupt people, John. No, I, I don't. Uh, listeners may know I don't have that uh, character trait that is just described, yes. but... Um... Yes, but Abigail would like to clarify that the most recommended Francis Harding novels are Goldstruck Island, Skinful of Shadows, uh, Verdigree Deep, and A Face Like Glass. And I've read three of those, and they're all good. So, 
go for it. Which ties in very nicely to an email we got from Karen Schaefer thanking us for our recommendation of a face like glass. And they read it just before listening to our discussion, just like a book club. It's just like a book club, except we get to pontificate for like an hour and then you get to write us a letter of comment that we extract the the bits we like from. So it's not quite like a book club. Maybe we should announce more often that we're going to do like a book episode and then people can read it. That might be a good idea. Maybe we should. That's a good point. When we all, when we record, so... The next episode we will be doing a book club about will be Six Wakes by Mer Lafferty, which was a Hugo Award finalist in, I think, 2018, which is my pick that I get to make Liz and Alison read. And I don't know when it will come out. We haven't yet read and recorded the episode. Uh, and you'll be able to do some behind the scenes cryptography, because if it comes out in like August 2024, <laughs> you now have an indication of time scale. <laughs> uh, but we'll let you know when we do record it. Uh, well, we'll let you know. I guess we'll let you know when near to when it comes out so that people can read it closer to the time. But yeah, foreshadowing. Something that's happened this week is that one of File 70, 770's throwback novels was grasped by Sherry Tepper, which is my choice for the book that I'm going to make John and Liz read. Um, so I thought it was quite funny that given all of the books in all of the world, they would pick that one. Of all the books of all the world, you had to walk in a mine. Yeah, like that one, like that. <laughs> <laughs> we heard, we heard toots we had toots of comment uh firstly peter sullivan says that he's beginning to catch up with the backlog um so obviously he said that and then he probably isn't going to listen to this episode for a while but when you get here hi peter uh and then raj says he loves allison's episode art this is the cricket episode art it feels like a 1930s seaside murder mystery where Alison is murdered, John is innocent but is framed for her murder because he looks shifty and Liz is the ditzy but very sharp lady detective who has sought everything out. I don't know if that's how it would unfold, but we could do it as a play. I'm happy to be the ditzy but sharp lady detective. I think I do get off lightly here. I, I don't want to be murdered, thank you. <laughs> I don't really want to be murdered, even in the play. So- I don't know why that's so funny, but it is. If you were murdered, would you want me to investigate your murder or John? Is this hypothetical too far? <laughs> I wonder if neither is an option, if I could <laughs> pick a detective who is not either of you. Well, yeah, that right. is Who reasonable. would it be? Any any fan who's investigating your murder? Chris Garcia. Chris Garcia. I mean, he, he does have... He is writing a book about true crime, I think. Yeah, speaking to the skill set. I, I feel like he'd investigate my murder with considerable energy. On the subject of cricket, um, Malcolm Hutchison told us on Facebook, what do you mean cricket isn't SF nor? A game created from my racial memory of being attacked by cricket robots? And I did think that when we were discussing it, and I didn't say it, but thank you very much for writing uh, writing in, Malcolm. That was very good. And also Farah thanked us for the discussion of COVID ventilation. We have news. We have been nominated for a Hugo Award. Yay! So, so thank you very much. Which answers one important question which we had at the time of recording, which is, will there be any English language finalists on the ballot? And the answer is yes, because we are. So, so we're very pleased. But which which makes conversations that are being had in theory about the Hugos very difficult because people are loudly asserting there won't be any. And I'm like, I know there will be, but I can't tell you why. Oh, no, I have heard elsewhere on gossipy grapevines 
I heard before we learnt that we were a nominee, I heard that there was at least one English language nominee through the grapevine. At time recording, we don't know anything else that's on the ballot. We're recording this after we receive the, you know, super secret email. Oh, no, we do. 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 We actually know two other things that are on the ballot, Liz. You know two other things on the ballot. I do not know two other things on the ballot. Well, I have been nominated for my role in a fanzine called Journey Planet. Congratulations, John. I did not know that. You did not tell me that. Yes, I do not, obviously do not officially know these things because no one would ever, you know, break the Hugo embargo to tell their mate stuff. No. Well, it's tricky. I feel like you two are good at keeping secrets. And also I feel like it would be weird to have this episode going out celebrating our Hugo Nom as a podcast without mentioning (laughs) our other Hugo Noms. Yeah. It would, yes. I edited the Andor issue of Journey Planet. And that was very good. Oh, thank you. I mean, Journey Planet did absolutely fantastic work last year and they were definitely on my ballot and I'm sure lots of other people's and I'm very glad to see that they're on the thing. So congratulations, John. And the Andor Andor episode issue was fantastic, even though it had the same joke on the cover that we'd used for Octothorpe and you must have known at the point where you commissioned it for Octothorpe and you did not tell me and I was only a bit annoyed. And by a bit annoyed, I mean absolutely fucking furious. Uh, you underestimate how joined up the Journey Planet team is. But you ed- you edited that. Oh, well, never mind. I blame, I blame sheer incompetence. I th- this is, I guess, a little bit of a look behind the curtain, but it's actually usually James who does the cover art uh, commissioning. Oh, right. Like, like so so for all of the episode all of the issues of journey planet i have worked on it has been james who commissioned the covers except for the matrix issue which i commissioned james needs to commission a cover from me then doesn't he because as we know bob so on the subject of people who were on uh nomination ballots from other people on the podcast uh someone else is nominated for hugo uh in our company i am also eligible in best fan artist and I have been nominated for this is my first Yay! This is my first finalist place for um best fan artist and I am very happy because I have been doing fan art in fanzines and in other places since nineteen ninety-six. So so I'm kinda like, Oh, this is amazing. I didn't think this would ever happen, so I'm very pleased. Um I've sent them a note saying here's here's my eligible stuff and about 13 of those pieces are Octothorpe covers. So thank you guys for not only providing me an outlet for my art, but also insisting that I do it every two weeks, because that is what we call good discipline. Um, And I'm pretty proud of some of the covers that I did in 2022. So do check them out if you've never looked at our um, cover art. We do have cover art. Most issue episodes and most of that's me, but some of it's by our other excellent artists. Um, like Sue Mason and Spanish Sheriff and Brad Foster we've had, had in 2022. And um, is that everyone? Oh, Sarah Felix. And if you are a fan artist uh, and we have not invited you to do fan art for our podcast, please write in because we're very British and coy. And what that means is you have to kick us to get us to ask you to do things. No, no, no. We will. Yeah, we'd love for you to do us art. Yes. Um, we have an art specification, but you're welcome to ignore all of it. It's only there so that you can have ideas to, to bounce off. Yeah, I should say how the process normally goes for the fortnightly Octothorpe art is Alison goes, do you have any art prompts, guys? And I try and come up with the most ludicrous one possible. 
like saying, can we all be mouse detectives or can we have a commemorative plate? And then Amazon somehow makes them into something amazing. It is very good. On the subject of being nominated for Hugo Awards, the Hugo Award finalists are out. But at the recording time, we do not know what they are because they weren't when we recorded. I'm going to say that I worked on the Hugo team a couple of years ago for the Discon 3. I did the Hugo Voter Packet. Um, this entire area of Worldcon work is tedious, finickety, hard work that takes ages, even if you don't theoretically have a load of nominations in a language you don't understand with a lot of different conventions for how titles are portrayed. So, I mean, I feel like they've probably had a bucket load of work to do and we should cut them a load of slack and the people who are not cutting them a load of slack yeah should take a chill pill because i'm sure it's going to get sorted out and the hugos will be awarded and it will all be lovely um but they did say that they would have it done by the end of june and it's now the second of july as we record so and i would say i mean my experience of worldcon deadlines is generally you have a deadline you set in advance and then like it slips by a couple of weeks and then sometimes it slips by a bit more but most of these deadlines because they're not as public-facing as Hugo's, no one really notices or cares about them, um, as long as you actually get it done in time. And you build in enough slack into the system that your deadline is always, well, we're going to do it now. And then if it slips by a couple of weeks, it won't actually you know, cause any massive problems. It will just tighten up all your timescales. So hopefully they will get them out and still give people a good couple of months to read everything. Um, I guess the timescales for the Hugo packet do get a little bit tight if that slips well, assuming there is a Hugo packet, if that slips as far as the nominees have, that might be a little bit difficult if people are relying on that to read things. But yeah, I would just urge people to get on with getting books out from the library and reading what fiction is free online and, you know, engaging with whatever else they can get their hands on before the Hugo packet if they're worried about running out of time. Three of us know that there are finalists out there. Uh, the File 770 comments, Paul Wyman notes that he knows that someone has been notified they are a finalist. So they are clearly going through. So like, it's not like no one has heard anything. So presumably it's just taking longer than they thought. So two days ago, um, Chengdu announced on their Facebook page, 114 lucky emails have been sent. We have now sent the emails to all of the finalists for final confirmation um, the official list will be announced once all the finalists have confirmed by email um chengdu is a shower we're recording a little pickup a little bit after we recorded because since we recorded the hugo finalists were announced and then were unannounced again i think announced is a strong word they were not really announced were they they sort of they were they were put on the website in a kind of by somebody who clearly didn't think that anybody would ever check, you know, chengduworldcon.com slash Hugo's. I, be I believe it's actually Hugo hyphen award, which is clearly very obfuscated. Liz, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I can kind of see how it happened. And I suspect that Chengdu are having to put more effort than many conventions into making sure their Hugo voting site is accessible from lots of different locations but i think just don't put the actual data in there to leave announce the awards but apparently they were using they've been using fake data for weeks the thing that happened was that people noticed when it changed to um data which tammy coxon assures us is not correct 
people who follow these things have pointed out numerous ways in which it cannot be correct because things that things are in wrong categories or or there is double dipping in the best dramatic presentations. But why would you even like ever take a set of data which is wrong and put it in there instead of dummy data? I just yeah. It doesn't make any sense, right? Because you hadn't noticed it was wrong at the point where you put it on and it took putting it on and having it around to cause people, including people who should have known better, to actually look at it and check it. No, obviously they knew it was wrong because Tammy said this is the incorrect list. Like, why why did they get the list from the Hugo administrators in the first place if it was not the actual list? Yeah, that's my question as well. Did they realise it was wrong until people pointed out it was wrong? Like, had, did, they, did the Hugo team think to put the categories in alphabetical order, for example? There's incompetence here from at least one group, right? Either the Hugo administrator was incompetent because they let an incorrect list into the wild of the rest of the convention, which should absolutely not have happened. It should have been the correct list, and there should have been no list, and then the correct list, and there should not have been an intermediate stage. And the web team were incompetent because on no account should you use real data when you're testing, ever. If you need representative data, use the 2022 Hugo finalists, which would be fine from the perspective of making sure like all your line wrapping is worked, but would be clearly not the actual ballot. These things do happen, and I don't want to be mean, but at the same time, this should not have happened. Oh yeah, no matter how many... How how much slack you are cutting the Chengdu team for having to do a very good, difficult job in a very difficult year, they absolutely should not have done this. And the number of the number of led so so when you're thinking about health and safety and risk management, you have this model of the Swiss cheese where you have layers of protection, none of which are perfect, but the idea is that things don't get through because a lot of imperfect barriers is as good as a perfect one, or it feels like you had to have made a cascade of stupid mistakes in order to have this happen in this way, and they should have not have done that. It's a little bit annoying because when we posited a binary when we first recorded this episode of they will announce it or they won't announce it, <laughs> we didn't imagine the third option where they would do both. Uh, so sorry, listeners, we've let you down. We've let ourselves down. Yeah, and we're not going to talk about the people who we now expect to be on the ballot and are thrilled to see on the ballot that we shouldn't have seen. But we are thrilled to see them all. Well done, everyone. There are no there are no Hugo finalists at the moment. There are only past winners and. That's fine, Liz. So my favourite my favorite comment on this whole thing is the person who's busy saying, oh, so when we see the final list, if there's anyone who wasn't on the redacted, who was on the redacted list but isn't on the final list, they are necessarily the people that the invidious forces of the Chinese government have deemed cannot be on the Hugo list. And, and I thought that was amazing. <laughs> oh, God. That hadn't occurred to me until you just said it. And now it has occurred to me and it makes me sad. <laughs> I think it's very unlikely, guys. I don't think I don't think the Chinese government cares that much. Oh no, I a hundred percent agree with that. But there will definitely be people who don't appear on the ballot because they'll have like recused or something, and then we're gonna have a massive argument about whether that. And I just I'm not here for it, listeners. I can't be up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when Alison says, "Did they only?" I I'm going to give them not much benefit of the doubt, but I don't think they can possibly realise that the list was not the correct list until they saw it on the website because. It had dramatic presentations in both short and long form, and we know that they always put them in one or the other category. And that is a really easy thing. That was the instant thing to spot. It's not like an edge case, like did someone, you know, self, you know, self-publish their 
you know, fiction on a tiny website in 2019 that makes them ineligible for astounding. It's like a big thing. So my, I mean, my personal theory is that it's just the top five in every category, sorry, top six in every category on the website before they do this kind of eligibility checking. And so what I hope is that the only people who disappear are those who actually decline or are ineligible or are in two categories and then we only get new people i'll be very sad if there is anyone who is actually on the list and then gets taken off because it was a colossal error that would be a big shame especially if it's us (laughs) anyway next segment (laughs) the locus award winners uh have been announced recently um, there are a whole load of them actually because they break down novel into multiple categories and they also award for short fiction and short story and anthology and collection and magazine. Um, so we'll link them in the show notes and you can go and read through them. I think the ones I would pull out are the winner of Novelette is If You Find Yourself Speaking to a God, Address God with the Informal You, which I think was one of John and I's picks for Best Novelette for the Hugos. The winner of Best Short Story was Rabbit Test by Samantha Mills, which again was one of our picks. And I don't think I've read any of the other winners, actually, so it's hard for me to pass comment on those, but they do look like a solid list of stuff. I will say that uh, Best Publisher winner was once again Tor. So uh, I will also pull out that in the category of Best Publisher, which was previously awarded under Best Book Publisher, I think it has been tour since about 1988, as far as I can tell. Although it has been it has been split into, uh, it's been Best Publisher or Best Publisher slash Imprint or Best Book Publisher at different times, as far as I can tell. They've all, since 1988, gone to tour. So maybe, I mean, I'm not saying tour aren't good, but I am saying maybe it's time we thought about whether there are other publishers who may have published something good in the past 35 years. It is tricky to look at because I've, I've looked up on the ISFDB and it's sort of split into five different awards at different times. But it looks like previously it was mostly Valentine, Del Rey and then passed seamlessly on to Tor uh, or Tor St. Martins. And I think those are the only winners. Probably represents the, you know, the the makeup of the voters and that they're probably predominantly American and probably do read a lot of books from Tor. But there's a number of, you know, British imprints on there in the, the long list, Angry Robot, um, Glance, Orbit, and also small presses like uh, Small Beer Press. So, yeah. Having said this, I bet next year the winner will just be Tor.com instead. <laughs> now I've said that. <laughs> oh, do you think you have that much power over? the locust fetus list no i don't i think it will just be to spite me basically anyway the 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 long list i think we mentioned the long list the long list do all look pretty good um i've read some of the fiction off the short fiction lists while i was reading for the hugos and i liked pretty much all the ones on these lists that i've read so as always locust is a the locust awards long list is quite a good survey of the field and has loads of good stuff in it it does and i suspect it's going to have uh some crossover with the hugo nominations when we see those yes probably finalists finalists uh there was a tempest in a teacup on a social network no one can get on where some people were unhappy that john scalzi won for best science fiction novel and john scalzi was unhappy that those people were unhappy and that went about as well as you'd expect 
there is an interesting bit from the July 2023 issue of Locus. Um, the Kaiju Preservation Society by John Scalzi won with the smallest winning lead this year, just 17 points ahead of Sea of Tranquility by Emily St. John Mandel, which had the most votes and first place votes and would have won without the doubling of subscriber points. And this is because if you are a Locus subscriber, your vote counts double in the Locus Awards. So if you were annoyed by any of that, it's all Locus readers' fault. Is that is that accurate? Is that is that the line we're taking? Is that good? I think that's good. Dispassionate. I mean, I didn't really follow the slap fight because I'm not on Twitter anymore. I just hear about the snap slap fights third hand, which is, I got to be honest, much more fun. No one's on Twitter anymore. It's true. I tried clicking the link you put to the tweet in, and it just said no error. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, this is good. I am a member of the BSFA, and the BSFA sent me their June 2023 uh, newsletter. I read in the newsletter that there are proposals for new awards categories, which reflect the expanding communities of science fiction the BSFA are connected with. And then they are detailed in the minutes of the AGM. Now, they say that these will be um, put out in more detail in the July newsletter. So maybe there will be more detail then. But as far as I can tell from the minutes, there are going to be some new BSFA awards. And that's exciting. So we're going to talk about it here. So there is going to be a split. They are splitting nonfiction into short nonfiction, which is under 30,000 words or under 30 minutes, and long nonfiction, which is over 30,000 words or over 30 minutes. And you'll notice, listeners, that that has the word minutes in it as well as words and therefore i believe it means that podcasts such as ours will be officially eligible rather than under the radar eligible because i assume the intention is to encompass well and also it says non-fiction any platform which is the other key clue there will be uh we will be eligible again which is cool because uh long time listeners might remember we were nominated in 2021 but we weren't nominated in 2022, and I suspect part of the reason was that we pointed out we were not technically eligible. So, so in 2021, we we were nominated, and we got our got onto our glad rags and went along to the awards ceremony. And a lot of people came up to us and said, "You know that we've read the rules, and you're not actually eligible," which was true. <laughs> well, no, it wasn't. People didn't come up to us. They read the description of the award when they were awarding the awards, and I noticed that the description did make it very clear it had to be written down, uh, which. I just assumed that because we were nominated, we were eligible. But that is, as it turns out, a bad assumption, listeners. Don't make that assumption necessarily. But anyway, this is good, I think. And they're also introducing original audio fiction. Um, They're introducing best collection. And they are splitting the short story, I believe, into novella and into short story. Although I am not 100% clear about that. So yes, there's also, I believe, a new one for best translated work of short fiction um but that's going to be a juried award not bsfa award in the same style as the others did you mention the one for collections i did mention the one for collections and so this is all very interesting in a vacuum i think several very good ideas here my worry is participation in the bsfa awards is not always as high as one might ideally like it to be it's lower than you'd like it to be. It's lower both at nomination stage, which means that things sometimes get onto the final ballot with very small numbers of nominations. And it's also 
lower than you'd like it to be at finalist stage, considering what a large member organisation the BSFA is and the fact that EasterCon members can also vote in the BSFA Awards. Um, it would be nice if there were more people. I mean, basically, a lot of you guys out there are eligible to vote in these awards at both stages. Please do that. It's good because broader participation is better. So I should say I am the one of us who is not a BSFA member at present. Do we get much detail on how many people actually voted or nominated? No, I'm relying on insider gossip here. Yeah, so it is It is quite difficult to know. And I think if I was at the AGM, I might have wanted to have a bit more detail on that. So I'd sort of know, maybe they presented this, but I would want to kind of know how many people you've, you've got that seem to be part of your sort of active nominating body. But you could also, you, you could argue that the way to get more people engaged with your awards is to give them more categories of things they really care about. And so maybe with more categories, you will get a more engaged voting body. So that, that was like what I was going to come back to, which is that's the counter argument, I think, is that if you recognise more categories that people care about, you might find that there's an uptick. It might be that this is the first step in doing that. I would also say that this was based on a committee they did look at the viability of each of the things they proposed. Um, so presumably this has been discussed at some point. I will also say, and it's interesting because I hadn't read this until just now, but one of the reasons stipulated in the report from the committee is that the reason this is happening now is because the award booklet is no longer being printed. It's only going to be a PDF, which means that expanding the award doesn't cost extra money for printing. And I had not really thought of that as like a consideration, but I guess that is... Um, that is another consideration happening here. That's an interesting thing. Imagine if they got rid of all their other print publications. Well, wow. So yeah, BSFA Awards. Interesting stuff. I have a slight worry about that because although increasing the number of award categories doesn't, um, it doesn't cause them actual cash problems because of printing, increasing the number of awards materially increases the amount of admin work and as we know from the hugo awards the the admin award for for the the admin work for awards can become overwhelming yeah i'm i'm slightly surprised they did so many at once rather than kind of doing you know doing maybe doing these changes one at a time but maybe there's a a sense of just doing them all at once and and seeing how they go and then you can drop them if it turns out there is no appetites for particular ones i says i could have sworn that the bsfa had an award for best translation or best translated work that was a juried award but am i barking up totally the wrong tree was non-fiction juried for a while someone who can like remember the 2010s please write in claire and mark you know everything about the history of the bsfa until they decide they didn't care about the history so please write in also anyone who can tell me why i can no longer remember the 2010s also please write in Oh, it gets so much worse, Liz, you have no idea. That was the BSFA Award. I have a pick and somewhere I have some notes because normally when I pick books, I have the books, but the books are so heavy. I was like, I'm not taking them camping. Right. So my pick this week is museum catalogues and in particular, the museum catalogues of two of the museums I went to last year two of the exhibitions I went to last year which were Science Fiction Voyage to the Edge of Imagination at the Science Museum and In the Black Fantastic at the Hayward Gallery and I think both of those got picked as picks on the podcast um, now museum catalogues 
used to just have pictures of everything that was in the museum and some text about the artist that more or less duplicated the material you could see in the exhibition. Um, But they've worked out that they can limit the amount of information in the exhibition and put it in museum catalogues instead for the nerds and charge a lot of money for these books. So being me and a massive cheapskate, I went to my library as soon as these books were published and said, please get me copies of these books. And now, almost a year later, I have them both at once. So they are large, very interesting hardbacks and they do they address the subject in two different ways. So Voyage to the Edge of Imagination, um, Glyn Morgan has collected contributions from a range of different academics to write chapters about the topic and this is illustrated with material about the exhibition as well. So it does it would represent it would be a great souvenir of the exhibition if you wanted to keep these sorts of things in your house, which I don't. Um, and that's kind of explored the themes of the exhibition in more depth through a variety of different perspectives. Um, and in the Black Fantastic has the author Echo Ashen actually going into more depth on the topic and the themes of the exhibition but pulling in some contributions from other people but not with the sense of it being an academic work in chapters in quite the same way. I think the thing that struck me most about this is that several of the reviews of Voyage to the Edge of the Imagination have suggested that the edge of the imagination of what is essentially visual science fiction of the last 50 years were not actually all that imaginative, that the edge of the imagination is not that far away because of the limits of human imagination. And then you look at it in The Black Fantastic, where Eshin is playing with essentially the whole of black culture, not merely Afrofuturism, but also lots of different sorts of um, black art and um, and the whole of the myth of all of the African peoples, which is an enormous range of culture and has and it, and of course it's it's massively more imaginative than the relatively narrow um robots and spaceship stuff that is there's most of the stuff of science fiction edge of the imagination these are two very good books and I recommend them both and both books made me think again about what I've seen in their relative exhibitions and think about what they were telling me in different ways and I strongly recommend them um, and you can get them from your library by putting your name down and waiting for a very long time. I'm going next. So my pick is a book I read basically in one sitting while on my uh, summer holidays. It is a novella called Stealing for the Sky by Adam Roberts, which it seemed to sort of sneak out. I mean, Adam Roberts writes a lot of kind of well-regarded science fiction novels, many of which have ended up on award shortlists. And Sealing for the Sky, I think, is by a different press than his novels come out. And it just sort of like snuck out, it seems. And it's it's quite enjoyable. All the reviews say it is in the style of Donald Westlake, an author I have never read. But it's basically like one of these sort of, it's sort of a science fiction thriller with a kind of very, a very violent and gory edge. I mean, if anyone who is planning to read this does not like kind of a a protagonist who is not afraid to deal out a lot of violence in the cause of doing the um, thievery that he does. But it, it seems it's quite entertaining and it ends up with him basically stealing a mystery device kind of in the course of another like heisty is pulling um, which has some really odd 
momentum effects. And then he ends up, he mostly steals satellites and he steals a strange orb. And then he ends up getting chased by the authorities, chased by Russians going out to try and heist an obsolete uh, rocket in the middle of the Russian winter. And it's just quite a fun kind of techno thriller near future, you know, in the, the protagonist whose name is Starman, slightly unbelievably, well, that's his nickname, is um, essentially stealing things to try and get enough money to go into space and probably get away from people. So it's, it's, it's quite short. I mean, it's a novella. I don't think it's going to win any awards, but it, I did find it kind of an entertaining thing to read while I was in transit because it's quite pacey and keeps your, keeps your attention. Nice. I had a, a moment of cognitive dissonance because you said Donald Westlake and I was like, what? Isn't that the chair of the Wussfuss Mark Protection Committee? But that's Donald Eastlake. Yeah, wrong one. So a uh, completely different lake. Adam Roberts is one of the authors that I do keep dipping into because he does normally write quite chewy stuff that is trying to expand my horizons. I mean, he doesn't necessarily always succeed. And it does sound like you've just described a Adam Roberts novella, which is just kind of cheerily pacey and entertaining. And are you sure it's the same Adam Roberts? So one thing I would say is that I've read quite a lot of Adam Roberts. I haven't read all of his work, but, you know, I've probably read at least 10, probably more of his novels. But I do think he, you know, there, there is some kind of common ground to them, but I don't think he writes the same book twice. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree with that. Which, you know, I applaud him for. Even when it's one that doesn't quite work for me, I do applaud him for what he's doing. I would say this one has some commonalities with Yellow Blue Tibia because he goes back to the sort of, it's in Russia and there's always sort of the slightly, slightly comedically done Russian accent kind of thing of like dour Russian heavies. So there's that in it. But I think because it's so short and because it's basically kind of pretty tight perspective on this one hardball protagonist who is just going around doing kind of a couple of heists and that's basically the whole thing. I think it does manage to be quite pacey, maybe pacier than a lot of his regular novels. But I mean, I went into it, I think I picked it up, picked it up off Amazon because it's very cheap on Amazon. Like I think it was under a quid. And so I thought, well, I'll give it a go. And I didn't really have many expectations for it because I hadn't read any of the comparator things. And yeah, I just found it to be a, a good little, you know, two hour diversion. Adam Roberts is one of the people who I would be absolutely delighted to see on next year's Hugo Ballot when um, the World Con is in the UK. So we might get more British stuff on the ballot. So therefore, write some good things in 2022, Adam. Well, is this book eligible? No, this is a it's a 2022 book. Oh, boo! So you need so he needs to write a 2023 one. Get your skates on, Adam. I honestly don't expect Adam Roberts to end up on the Hugo shortlist. I mean, he's been on the BSFA shortlists, but I don't know if his books kind of have enough mass appeal to get on the Hugo shortlist. I think they are, one thing, always very different from each other. They are sometimes quite difficult reads, quite philosophical, and maybe they've never quite passed that threshold of being on the Hugo ballot. I also don't know if he has a high readership in the US. Whereas, for instance, I know that, say, Adrian Tchaikovsky now has like a US publisher and gets more attention in the US. And that might be part of why he's starting to turn up on, on, on Hugo ballots. But like you say, 2024 is going to be, 2024 is going to be an incredibly odd year for Hugo nominations because it's going to be anyone who joined to vote in 2023. 
which could be a lot. It could be, and we'll see the, the Chinese influence on there, which may be persistent to 2024, plus a whole load more Europeans than you might have had for the past few years, plus the Americans who are still joining to come to Glasgow or just to have voting and nomination rights. It could be really hard next year. I look forward to it. I'm gonna pick, I'm gonna not pick something, and then I'm gonna do my pick. So I'm not gonna pick every Clark Award finalist that as I read them because I think that would get tedious for everyone. But I have just finished reading Venomous Lump Sucker by Ned Bowman, which I've put in my Goodreads review that it felt to me like in some places the Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson, but in other places it felt like Ready Player One by Ernest Klein. And it really distresses me that, like, I can see how this book could have been amazing, but there are just so many bits where it isn't. And there was one bit where I did a full body eye roll, which I didn't know I was capable of. <laughs> oh, could you, could you, can you do one to demonstrate what a full body eye roll looks like, John, for the, for the audio podcast? <laughs> it's like, ah, it's like, some of it's very insightful and interesting and some of it is extremely crude and uninsightful and sort of very un unfunny and unwitty in a in a parts of it feel very incisive and cutting and parts of it feels zany in a bad way and i found that incredibly frustrating uh, can i can i just check is it the bits that were like Kim Stanley Robinson that were the insightful ones and the bits that were unfunny and forced, <laughs> like Ready Player One, by any chance? You have successfully you have successfully grasped the key. Yeah, it's tricky. I do wonder whether um, someone more grounded in the genre would have avoided some of the zaniness, but I don't know whether that's a fair... I don't know whether that's fair or not, really, because I get the impression this comes from the literary angle, as did the anomaly. Um, but yes... I, I didn't hate it, but I and I wanted to like it more than I ended up liking it, which was a frustrating experience. Does he at any point have chapters where he just like lists a whole bunch of shit? There's a lot of info dumping and there's a lot of I'm very clever and have worked out the I'm going to tell you things in the guise of one of the characters now, which is, yeah, in that same kind of way that Ready Player One does. This is, of course, not my pick. <laughs> I'm just explaining why it's not my pick for the for the listener my actual pick is across the spider-verse which i went to see oh. with friends of the friends of the pod neil harrison and nick clark in the jam jar cinema in Whitley bay which is a lovely little cinema and it's very good it is interesting i believe it is spoiler half a movie yeah but i don't mind that I mean, it became very clear it was half a movie when I looked at my watch and I was like, well, it feels like we're about at the end of Act 2 and we have been in the cinema for over two hours. Uh, and I do not understand how they could do a compelling Act 3 in the next sort of 20 minutes. Uh, and then there was a to be continued. And I was like, oh, yes, that makes sense in the in the sense of uh, what I know about the structures of movies. I, I don't think this is a problem at all if you know it's happening. I, I didn't know it was happening and I wasn't bothered. And, you know, I've seen lots of good movies in the cinema where, well, I, I really like the first half of June, but I went into that clear eyed believing I was getting the first half of June. I think if I'd gone into the cinema believing I was seeing the entire plot, I would have been pretty pissed off because it really do, it really just does film the first half of the thing. Dune didn't market itself as a part one, right? All of the posters just said Dune. 
I think if you were paying attention to Dune, you knew Dune was part one of a two-part story. And if you're paying attention to this, you probably know the same. But both movies have not marketed themselves as part one, which it like, you know, is not great. But I've noticed a lot of people talking about this in ways that I think are slightly... (laughs) Okay, so people have been commending the art style, which I think is great. And obviously the first one did a lot in terms of animation techniques, which was very fresh. One of the things that's been repeatedly um, kind of praised is the art style of Spider-Gwen's universe. And it's slightly frustrating because no one is discussing that. Everyone is discussing that as if that was something the film did. And that is just straight from the comics. And that is something the comics have been doing since Spider-Gwen was a character in the comic. So like, I do find it slightly frustrating that a lot of people are giving Miller and Lord the credit for that in a way that I think is weird. Because I think it betrays a lack of knowledge of the source material. Not unusual for comic adaptations in movies. No, no, probably not. It's very common for things that are straight out of the comics to be hailed as, as fresh and innovative in movies. Because one of the things that you could do in comics is explore cinematographic styles at low cost. Much lower cost than making movies, which is an expensive thing to do. Yes. In general, I I think the pacing is weird in the start because it starts by telling Spider-Gwen's story and then kind of cuts to the title sequence and takes us back to Miles um, probably about 20 minutes in, which is quite a long time to basically do an act zero. And that was, it didn't feel, the structure is slightly weird as a result. And I'm glad they did that. But certainly at the beginning, I was a bit like, this is not quite as well paced as the original, which is probably about as perfect as you could structure a movie. But when it gets into things, it's really good. Um, I also find it interesting that they don't use the characters from the original movie as prominently as they might have done. Um, like obviously Gwen's in it a lot and Miles is in it a lot but the other characters are like not featured as much which I was a bit surprised by but I'm assuming that they will come back in uh, the third installment but in general I really liked it and I think it does a good job of doing something a bit different with the series than you might otherwise have done and also I really like how enthusiastically they've embraced the complete lunacy of the Spider-Verse because like they were describing stuff in the film and I was like, I cannot believe that they are putting all of this in the movie because it doesn't really, it's kind of hard to work out what's going on in the comics. And there you could reread the page, but this is like the web of destiny and you're like, oh my God, it's all here, uh, which is fabulous, but kind of mad. That was true in the first one though. Oh, but the second one... Have you seen the second one? No. Should I? No, so the second one um, ramps it up to, like, 11 or 12, I think. Um, they they fully embrace... Well, because I think the first one... The first one does have, like, the multiverse stuff in, but it doesn't go anywhere near as much into, like, the mysticism behind it that's in the comics. And the second one, I feel like, is starting to touch on all that more. Um, and I think is kind of i like it a lot but i'm not necessarily i don't think i would have guessed that that was the way they were going to go maybe that's the best way to put it um so yeah it sounds great i liked it a great deal i would highly recommend seeing it in the cinema even though it is a part one for much the same reason i regret not seeing dune in the cinema despite it being a part one although dune i didn't go and see not because it was a part one but because it was too long i have a rule about long movies well that was the Octa thought podcast and it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me.
And somehow, while we were doing that, every Lebanese restaurant on my delivery app has gone offline, probably because it rained while we were on doing the podcast. I think we're getting through it. I think we've got some stuff here. This is good. I think we're done, apart from picks, aren't we? The problem is I don't have a pick. Yeah, you do. You've got a pick, Liz. Search your feelings. You know it to be true. <sighs> I did watch Rogue One. Pick pick the beach. I haven't been to the beach. You went to the beach last time we recorded, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to pick, like, Indonesia as my pick. Though it is very nice. Let me see what books I've read. Someone else go first. Why aren't you? What's wrong with picking Indonesia? Is it very nice? Should we go? I've got to pick a country for a pick. It's not science fictional. You can because it's the summer of fun. Well, if we're going to pick for the summer of fun, then I'm picking sport and you probably don't want that. Oh, do it. Do it. You mean all sport or a specific sport? A specific sport. No, I've got something. It's all right. Pick a sport. Pick a sport. Pick a sport. No, we're good. I've got a book. Pick a sport that's not cricket because I feel like we should have equal representation for other sports that are played in summer. Well, I feel that this is like just escalating the off-topic cricket mentions of the pod. The theme music for this episode was Surf Shimmy by Kevin MacLeod and Combatech.com used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.